This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. It was not just about providing medical care. It was about providing care in a deeply human way that recognized personhood, that acknowledged the losses of every person. You know, every, every individual that I meet in a clinical setting has lost something. Their life has changed. They've uh, left a state of health that they were in before, and now uh, they're struggling to regain equilibrium. So it was really about honoring that part of it. I think when you grow up knowing what it's like when people do not treat that experience with reverence and don't treat, as you say, someone you love with dignity, it leaves, um, it can be very traumatic and it can also leave you with a kind of drive, um, sometimes even a kind of anger just to right that wrong through the story of your own life. That's Dr. Jillian Horton, a physician and writer whose personal experience with the worst of medical care has led to a drive for the cause of compassion in medicine. Her recent book titled We Are All Perfectly Fine, a memoir of love, medicine, and healing, is a beautifully written account of her own efforts to make medicine more caring, as well as a powerful argument for rethinking how doctors are trained. This is so great to be talking with you today. I'm so impressed with you. You're so good in so many ways at so many things. It amazes me. Well, I could say the same thing right back to you, actually, Alan. And can I just say it is uh, totally surreal to be here with you today, one of my absolute heroes in life. So thank you so much for the invitation. That's very kind of you. I think what I want to know about you is what went on in you that made you want to become a doctor in the first place? Was it your sister's health? Was that the main thing? It absolutely was, Alan. You know, from the earliest time that I can remember growing up, I had what I often think of as a front row seat to a very 
personal story of human suffering. My sister had a brain tumor at a very young age and a long delay to diagnosis and a lot of tragic consequences after her uh, diagnosis and surgery. And that was only the first part of our experience as the family. That was that was hard enough. But the subsequent uh, contact with the medical system, there were some really wonderful highs. There were some physicians who were so kind and so compassionate. And there were also a huge number of physicians and people connected to the healthcare system who were not at all kind, who were not at all compassionate, and who did a great deal of damage. And I think seeing that from a young, formative age left just an indelible impression for me. I had wanted to do a lot of other things with my life. There were a lot of competing interests, but I could never really forget what I knew, what I had learned. And I felt, I think, to some degree, a moral compulsion to use that knowledge in my practice as a physician. So it, it sounds like it wasn't just a desire to help make people better, to help people who were suffering from poor health like your sister, but to do it in a way that didn't steal their dignity at the same time. Absolutely. I think that's just bang on, that it was not just about providing medical care. It was about providing care in a deeply human way that recognized personhood, that acknowledged the losses of every person. You know, every every individual that I meet in a clinical setting has lost something. Their life has changed. They've uh, left a state of health that they were in before, and now uh, they're struggling to regain equilibrium. So it was really about honoring that part of it. I think when you grow up knowing what it's like when people do not treat that experience with reverence and don't treat, as you say, someone you love with dignity, it leaves, um, a, a, it can be very traumatic and it can also leave you with a kind of drive, um, sometimes even a kind of anger just to right that wrong through the story of your own life. Exactly. To restitute, yeah. Right. There's that unforgettable moment in your book where I guess the, the, the physician had just made a brain scan and was showing it to your parents who were asking yeah. understandable questions. What will this mean to her life? What's the prognosis? What state is she in? And he said that awful thing out of impatience to them. Yeah. Yeah, he said, can't you get it through your head? There's no brain left. This child has no brain left, he said to my parents in that can't moment. Can't you of, get it into your head? Can't you get that, it into your heads? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 actually, and he was, you know, you know what occurs to me hmm. is that looking at it from his point of view for a minute, yeah, he has the responsibility of that patient on his hands and a hundred more, and he wants... Them, he wants the family to adjust to it, maybe in a way that would give them a chance to give better care to the kid. Yeah. But his impatience becomes the most important thing to him. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting that you say that, Alan, because this was exactly one of my experiences writing the book, you know, starting from a place of, frankly, some hatred for that physician personally, whose name I actually didn't even know for years. But one of the things that happened to me during the course of writing this book, 
and doing the work that I talk about in the book, really diving deep into physician burnout and what happens to make physicians act in this inhuman way, I did find somewhere a kind of compassion for him that surprised me. I I wouldn't say it's forgiveness. I'm not sure that I'm there yet. But I came to understand how that individual may well have been a product of a culture that trained him to behave that way and that conditioned him to believe that this was somehow um, a useful kind of uh, behavior. You know, it, it, um, it struck me that that one in a quest to become more compassionate, uh, that we often find we have to extend that compassion to people that we may not feel like extending it to. And that physician and his role in my sister's life and my family's mythology, he was one of those people for me. And empathy is not necessarily the same thing as compassion. Yeah. It's, it, you don't really have to have compassion for mm-hmm. somebody who is rude to you or or makes you unhappy, mm-hmm. but it does help you navigate if you yeah. know what they're going through and why they did it. Yes. I, th- I think, anyway. I agree. And I think that actually for me as well, it's been helpful because it's allowed me to feel even more uh, empowered to address the overall problem of how we are working in a culture and even sometimes still training physicians who behave in ways that are not human, that are not empathetic. It's allowed me to see, instead of it being about an individual with terrible individual transgressions, um, it's become much more about a bigger system problem. And Mm -hmm. we can actually start to address system problems a little bit more than we can address uh, failings of individuals. We make it less moral and more actionable, maybe. So Mm -hmm. that's been sort of oddly cathartic for me, too. It seems to me that the health of the patient, just in mechanical terms, not just how good they feel about the treatment or or the examination session, but their actual health in terms of following the doctor's recommendations, is going to be increased. In fact, there have been studies that showed when the physician is perceived as empathic, yes. that is actually paying attention, listening to the patient, yes. they tend to follow the advice more. Exactly. They take the medicine, they, they do the exercise, and, and so on. Yeah. So just, just in terms of the transaction, paying attention and not being so professional you're behind the teller's counter with a cage in front of you. Exactly. Exactly. That I I love how you framed that and it's a, it is the difference between those two things. And it's interesting, you know, the studies you're talking about when I'm working with medical students and I tell them that for the first time and I say, so in a diabetes clinic, uh, there's literature to show that physicians who are perceived as more compassionate Uh, by the patients, that those patients have a better long-term measure of their blood glucose, that it's Mm -hmm. lower. And the students, when you just present that fact, they often go, wow, that's so weird. Why would that be? (laughs) And it takes, you know, a little while. They come up sometimes with these weird hypotheses about why that are incredibly complicated and wrong. Instead, they forget that when we have that therapeutic alliance, when we have a sense, not just that we behave as if we care about the patient, but when we take it a step further, when we 
actually do when we invest ourselves and allow ourselves to become a stakeholder in what happens to that person. I remember in your book, there's this really interesting story that's an example of what we're talking about was your your encounter with a patient called Fanny, mm, mm. who you became friends with. Yes. Tell a little bit about that. Yeah. And that, that story is a true, um, a true story. And the patient is, uh, she's long since passed away. But this was an experience on my internal medicine rotation when I was a medical student. And I had this woman that I just, oh, I just fell in love with her. You know, she was in her 80s. She was spunky. She was funny. I immediately felt a sense of connection with her. And uh, she had a valvular heart problem. So she kept coming into the hospital with heart failure. And on this admission at the end, she wrote down her address for me on a little scrap of her hospital menu. She slid it over to me and she said, I want to hear from you. And she lived at a home that was actually not too far from where I was living um, in the city where I went to medical school, Hamilton. And she said, I want to, I want you to come over and I'm going to make you a bacon sandwich. That's my specialty. And I thought, well, she has about the same level of cooking skill as me too. That was another... <laughs> way in which we quickly bonded. <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, I I loved this idea. I pinned it up. We exchanged a card, I think, in between. And then I was a little while, um, and I remember that the note that I do have, uh, one of the last phrases in it is, please do write, I'm anxious to hear from you. And, you know, a little bit of time went by, and medical students, any medical student anywhere will tell you that life does not leave you much time to answer letters, to do your laundry, to tend to your own family. So a handful of weeks went by, and I kept thinking, I have to write her, I have to write her. And then I did. And about a week later, I got a letter uh, sent to my home address uh, with a lawyer return address on it. And I opened it and it was a letter saying we're answering on behalf of your friend. We are the executives of, of her estate. And she passed away last week. And I remember that just thinking, you know, on one hand, this little bit of this professionalism question mark, you know, thinking, is how do I, like, where is my grief in all of this? But, you know, I have to say for me, that question settled very quickly. For some learners, um, I think even for some physicians, it becomes like a perennial question mark that they think, how much am I allowed to care? Whereas me, I just knew I cared about her. And this was the loss of someone who occupied a space in my life that was similar in every important and meaningful way emotionally to the space that, you know, people that I care about occupy, neighbors or elderly friends. And I felt quite able to grieve for her um, in that in that moment. And I think that was actually also a really important moment for me. And I hadn't really thought about it a lot before in, in this particular way, Alan, but it was like, it was one of the first times when I crossed that border. I'm, I'm wondering too about the idea that it may be that some physicians retreat to distance yeah. because it's too painful to be experiencing one death after another, one malady after another, one complaint yes. after another, yes. one awkward question. And that can, if, if they're not prepared for the, the tsunami of pain coming their way, it seems to me they're in, they're in, in, in line for some serious meltdown. I 
totally agree with that point. And I think it's it's so important. And I'm, I'm glad you made it because it's probably one that I should have acknowledged earlier, you know. But what you said, I think, is, is so critically important because when we look at physicians' um, experience with dealing with suffering, I mean, there are a number of reasons that are talked about in the literature that cause people to step away from dealing with it in a profound manner, in a, a satisfying manner to the person on the other side. And one of those things is we have this fixing orientation in medicine and we're trained to be fixers, to think of ourselves as fixers, even when we round on the internal medicine service, part of the great theater is what is the problem list and what are you doing about each of those problems? And you know, we can't do very much about a lot of the problems on those lists because they bleed well beyond the boundaries of the hospital. So there's this pretentious problem with a fix thinking that's conditioned. But then there's also the fact that we prize critical thinking over emotional attunement. And I think most physicians are trained in a way that they get more external praise and rewards and validation for being able to list a long differential diagnosis uh, in response to a problem than they get praise, affirmation, or um, encouragement for just displaying a deep degree of emotional attunement. So that's part of our culture problem. But then the final part, I think, comes back to exactly what you said, that people experience depersonalization in response to really painful things that they see. They have no opportunity to discuss, debrief them, to metabolize them in a way that is efficient. And as a result, you know, they carry forward with them all these painful, formative things. I was working with a group yesterday, and a psychiatrist uh, was talking about her early experiences and saying she thinks one of the reasons they're so painful is because there's no callus at that point there. There's nothing, you know, the student is is raw in a sense. They're like a baby's mm. tender foot, you know, stepping on gravel. And there's nothing, there's no barrier to, to just take the edge off that pain. And so all of these things, I think, often contribute to people saying, I'm going to do the only thing that I know how to do. I'm going to put a wall between me and this person. I'm going to ignore my feelings. I'm going to repress my emotion. And I'm going to go home and pretend that didn't happen. But, you know, of course we know that doesn't work very well. That's why we end up palliating those emotions with a lot of other things, compulsive behaviors, alcohol, substances, um, you know, way, numbing people out emotionally and it bleeds into family life it bleeds into our relationships it i think has been a big contributor among among many but to the crisis that we have in, in terms of physician suicide physicians have the highest rate of completed suicide of all the white collar professions i mean the number of physicians that i know or people in my broader circles who have completed suicide I mean, that number is staggering mm. it's not normal and yet we've become kind of a little bit desensitized this to this as a culture because we've forgotten how no abnormal it is in most other professions and settings When we come back from our break, Dr. Gillian Horton talks about what's wrong with the way doctors are trained and why one of her favorite doctor role models is a fictitious character named Hawkeye. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors. 
and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Jillian Horton. I get the impression that you feel very strongly that the way doctors are trained leads to some of the regrettable behavior that we're talking about. (laughs) What are some of those factors that you think sort of put people on the road that goes in the wrong direction? We often talk in medicine about an idea that exists outside of medicine, too, but it's particularly popular here, and it's the idea of the hidden curriculum. So, you know, we say one thing. We say, uh, you should be kind to patients. You should form strong therapeutic relationships with patients. Take time to communicate with your patients. And then we stick people on a ward, and what do they see? They see people not interacting in kind ways. They see systemic racism. They see ageism. They see ableism. They see physicians who don't know how to connect to people, who are not present. And I don't mean every physician. I mean, they see the whole gamut, right? But they see a lot of that kind of disconnect. And sometimes somewhere along the way, I think they come to the conclusion, and I know students say this to me all the time, they believe that compassion fatigue is inevitable. And they believe that burnout is inevitable and it's not Mm. possible to be any other way. And so they quickly truncate the process of exploration and they shorten the period of time that they're spending with patients and they just kind of give up because they get a lot of hidden curriculum messages around them that 
this is going to happen to you anyway, so might as well cut the cord now. And I think we really have to, as a profession, do a few things. I mean, one is if you want to graduate from medical school, you do have to know quite a bit in order to pass those exams. But along with excellent so-called clinical skill, our definition of being an excellent physician should include, must include, being an excellent communicator. Like too often, I just wrote a piece about this actually, that, you know, we talk about someone being, I always pick on surgeons, not because they embody this, but because it's a most concrete example. You know, someone will say, well, so-and-so, he's not the friendliest and you won't like dealing with him, but he's a great surgeon. And I don't need my surgeon to save my life. I just need him to, you know, do a great job. I just need him to save my life. I don't need him to be my best friend. And what I always say back to that is, let's just change that up a little bit. What if your surgeon doesn't wear pants? And somebody comes in and says, now the doctor's going to be seeing you now. He's, it's kind of weird. He doesn't wear any pants. That's just who he is. Uh, but he's a wonderful surgeon. So just try to ignore it. Like you'd be, rightfully, you'd get up and leave the room because you'd say, this person has a problem with judgment. There's something, there's a building block <laughs> that I consider to be fundamental <laughs> to operating and living in this world. And if they're allowed to get by just not wearing pants, what else are they allowed to do? <laughs> you know? So I think we really need to keep pushing back. Sometimes it's those kinds of examples that help us illuminate the absurdity of what we've accepted in our culture. You can be a great doctor and you can be rude. No, you can't. That's wrong. And right. until we begin to correct that message over and over, and that comes from our leaders, and our leaders don't embody that behavior you know, we'll continue to be stuck with a bunch of doctors who are the equivalents to people who don't wear pants but are supposedly really good at what they do. So I'm going to let other people have those guys. I want the doctor who, the the male and female doctors who wear the pants. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned uh, you can tell them to spend more time with the patient. You can tell them to be more empathic, to listen more. Uh, and then they see in the culture they're thrown into yeah. Not much of that. I don't know if you have found the same thing that I, I've observed, is that for most people, you don't get very far just telling them anyway. Yes. Unless you can devise experiences that they can go through that transform them. Yes. It just becomes a mental exercise. And, and, and it's, it's like saying I should lose weight. Yeah. Which you can say to yourself— just before and just after you put the hamburger in your face. Yeah. It's, it's hearing it, it doesn't activate it. So, oh, I, exactly. So there are a few things, you know, that, that come to mind and that I think have been helpful to me to conceive of as a teacher. And one is just modeling it. And one of my favorite moments as a teacher, a few years ago, I was working with a student and I have um, a fabulous colleague. Actually, he was once one of my patients. He allows me to share this. Um, and we formed such a deep connection as a patient that I said to him, you know what, I need you to come and work with me to help me teach medical students because you have something really special to offer. And one of his skills is that he's a really good actor. So I would bring him onto the ward when I was attending as a physician on the ward, not just in some dislocated uh, context, but I'd bring him on and 
you know, as my learners were working with in real time how to give bad news, how to deal with disclosing a medical error, we practiced those scenarios with him. Mm. So one day we were doing this scenario. I asked him, I asked a um, medical student to give him the news uh, that something terrible had happened, that a, a mistake had been made. So this student, very lovely young man, he starts saying, um, uh, Mr. McLaren, I'm sorry to tell you uh, we chose the wrong medication and we've uh, poisoned your kidneys and uh, extremely sorry and uh, I, I hope you'll uh, forgive us. And, you know, I was watching this going, how, like, th- this is painful. I mean, if I would sue that person just for the way they behaved just now as a matter of principle, <laughs> you know, regardless of what had happened, the, the conduct was such an affront. But I had an inspiration in that moment. So I, I said, just time out. I want you to go back, and we're going to change the scenario. And the scenario is this. Jim is your neighbor, and he just had you over for dinner. And while you were backing your car to the driveway, you ran over his dog, and you killed his dog, and his dog is dead. And just, I want you to do that scenario right now with him. And it was amazing. Suddenly, it was like he got it. What that student understood in that moment was, all I have to do is be human, be myself. He could understand the concept of the grief that he had caused someone by running over their dog. He immediately felt horrible. You could see it. He was almost tearful. You know, it was this beautiful, I wish I had it on video camera. But afterwards, I always felt that that was one of my most important breakthrough moments as a teacher, that I had really allowed someone to tap into something that was already there, but was dormant. You know, just like you said, that there are ways that we can motivate ourselves and and it's sometimes a bit unknown to us, like the example with the hamburger. How can I change? How can I, you know, connect with what I know to be true, my latent wisdom that is somewhere in me? And I, so I really am a big believer in this with each learner in each setting, the power of metaphor. And then also, you know, using some of the very same techniques that you use, the improv, but in a contextually um, appropriate moment, I think we can amplify, uh, we can sort of put it on steroids and make it even more powerful. Yeah, that's a perfect example of yeah. the, the power of the experience. Yeah. The experience that doctors are put through when they're young seems to me like a kind of hazing. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine it does them any good. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine it does the patients much good. Yeah. The idea that I might be tended to um, regarding a life or death decision a doctor has to make after two days of sleep yeah. deprivation doesn't sound yeah. like the kind of advice I'd want to get. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it, you just... I, I was talking to someone the other day and I was saying, you know, th- there's a reason that in the last year... All of my writing, I have chosen with almost everything I've written about medicine to place it in mainstream media by shining a light in a way that we know the public suddenly becomes aware, gosh, my doctor was awake for 20 hours when they looked at my critical lab value. Or, you know, my doctor feels I can't, they're not even paying attention to me. They're yawning all the time. Well, that's because your doctor's been on call for six days and hasn't had a proper sleep. And are you okay with that? Like, are we, if our pilot, you know, if we knew we were flying somewhere and one of the two pilots was, you know, going to constantly be getting texts from a pilot uh, in a plane in another state saying, hey, do you know where I can find the emergency brake? Like, 
we would say that's a distraction. We've got to remove that cognitive load from that pilot so they can fly safely. But again, that stupid example actually does illustrate what we deal with as physicians. We have so many intrusions. You know, when you're, like you talk about the hazing, when you're a medical student as an intern, um, later on as an intern or a senior resident, and then as a staff physician, your pager is going off repeatedly over and over. And sometimes it's like, you know, can I have a Tylenol order or this, you know, this situation that you can't do anything about anyway, I have to let you know. And it is so toxic and so destructive along with all those other hits, the sleep deprivation, the physical isolation, the lack of hydration and proper nutrition and rest breaks. So it all piles on to create something unsafe, something very suboptimal compared to, in most settings, what it actually could be. Like it's a wicked problem that needs a multi, multi, multi-layered approach. But, and, and I just never want to frame it as if I'm saying it's, you know, I think it's simpler than it really is. But the more complicated the problem, the more we need the various stakeholders to engage with how we're going to change it and to ask for something, something better. Well, you're all about something better. Mm-hmm. Something that occurs to me is our time is, is pretty much run out. Oh. But you, the toxicity you talked about is met with the tonic that you offer. You're, oh. you're a real tonic. And it's a, oh. it's a pleasure to see your creativity and your attention to this problem. Well, Alan. Attended to by you so well. It's just very exciting to see. Well, and I really want to emphasize to you, and I know you hear this from doctor after doctor after doctor, but, you know, even when that piece came out in the LA Times, the number of physicians who wrote to me from all over North America and said that, you know, the portrayal of Hawkeye, the way to be, you know, the how deeply that became ingrained in those people's identity at the bedside, the use of humor, the compassion, the healthy resistance, all those elements, you know, it it really, I think, speaks to the power of your life's work and how art is more than just a um, something that exists on its own plane. I mean, you have, you have made the most a more profound difference than I think any of us really feel capable of articulating and You're I very just kind. well I'm it's very well, kind. I, I speak I'm, for so many <laughs> well I must say that I often have people coming up to me on street corners and telling me <laughs> they became a doctor because yeah. of watching me play Hawkeye many yeah. many people not a single person has come up and said I've seen you play Hawkeye and I decided to become an actor <laughs> And you know what? Today, Hawkeye would be hauled in for professionalism remediation oh, uh, yeah. on every single front. <laughs> every level. Yeah. That's right. His heart wouldn't matter. It would be his, uh, the bathrobe would be a non-starter. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think I just, in honor of you, I just may start wearing one tomorrow on the wards. <laughs> So we always end our show with seven quick questions and invite seven quick answers. And they're roughly, in a vague way, something to do with communication. Awesome. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Economics. Uh. Do you want me to give a one-word answer or? 
You well, know I rarely do that. You figured that out by <laughs> <laughs> It's not my DNA. <laughs> yeah, that's good. One, one word, or, or if you're you know, inspired to say more, that's good too. Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I start by saying, I hear you. I acknowledge that they've spoken. And mm. then I say, uh, and I think there is... Um, other information that would contradict that. So I, I kind of use your yes and technique there instead of the but or the or something more controversial. So begin by acknowledging that they have spoken and that I've heard them, uh, but then point them to what I know uh, that is um, tells me that what they said is not correct. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> you know, I, th I think uh, it was during a time not long after I had been on my first maternity leave and I hadn't worked somewhere for a while. And I went back and a nurse said to me, uh, are you related to that other Dr. Horton who used to work here? <laughs> he meant that I was so unrecognizable after my first maternity leave <laughs> that he didn't even know it was me. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's exactly a strange... It's maybe the most insulting question you. anyone's ever asked me. <laughs> yes, you, I'm a ruined version I didn't version realize of her. you were the other Dr. Horton. <laughs> and I was that other Dr. Horton, yeah. <laughs> okay, here's a how-to question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Hmm. <laughs> if you do. Yes, if you do. Um, sometimes uh, I use a, what I think of as like a tender timeout. So I will say something like, and I encounter this actually quite a bit in the clinical setting, right? So I'll say something like, great, hold that thought. That's a great hmm. thought. I need you to come back to this. So, and also just noticing my own reactivity as these things are um, getting, you know, as the talking is going on. So I might say to someone, I'm noticing that I'm getting a bit worried about our time, so I need to redirect you. But the the tender, friendly, uh, non-confrontational timeout is one that does tend to, um, tend to work for me. That's very practical. I love that. <laughs> now, let's say we're at a dinner table, and that, that'll probably be coming before too long again. <laughs> and you're sitting next to someone you don't, no. How do you strike up a genuine conversation with that hmm. person? Hmm. I think the number one thing is to show interest for me. So it's not not even so much about what you ask as opposed to just showing with your presence that you are interested in, in them. So looking at them, taking them in, and showing that your interest is authentic. I, The flip side of that, actually, something I... I don't tend to like is like an um, sort of a contrived or disingenuous question. So sometimes you meet people for the first time and they'll say, uh, what's the most interesting place you've ever been? And, you know, we're not at a travel talk. It has nothing to do with what we're asking. So starting with a basic question, but I think the quality of our presence, our eye contact and our nonverbal communication, leaning in once we're safe to do that again, um, is a way that we can begin to... Um, make it safe for people to make people comfortable talking to us and uh, 
my mom, I, you know, I will just say, related to growing up with my sister, I, my mom always says, like, I could strike up a conversation with an inanimate object and it would talk back to me. And again, it's part of that just, I will make this as easy as possible for you. It's my job to remove the barriers. It's my job to decide, to in interpret based on your communication if you need me to speak a bit louder, if you need me to speak a bit slowly. So I have to adjust my own dials in order to be the effective communicator. The onus is not on the other person mm. in, in that context. Well said. What gives you confidence? Hmm. I think having reached a point in my life when I'm just comfortable with myself, when I don't really worry too much about external validation, when the things that I've done building on that cement foundation, just doing, doing, accepting what my strengths are and letting them evolve in their own direction. Last question. Hmm. What book changed your life? Hmm. Um, a recent book, and it's not a, a work of art book, um, it's not that recent, but it's the book called You Are Not Your Brain by Jeffrey Schwartz. And it's a book about, I don't know if you've read his work, but um, one of the primary concepts in the book is one you're very familiar with, neuroplasticity. And this was the first book that really made neuroplasticity real for me as a concept that I could apply to my own life. So Schwartz really talks about how to reframe problematic thinking loops, uh, including loops that tell us we're not good at things, that undermine our confidence, um, and so gives uh, very concrete ways of changing our thinking patterns. And I think that book, uh, which I discovered about six years ago, opened up a whole new world for me. That's great. You know, I think our talk today has opened up worlds for others as well. Oh. It's just been terrific talking with you, and I, I recommend everyone read your book. Oh, thank you. And not just read it, but try to live it a little. <laughs> thank it, you for today, yeah. and thanks for all you do. Oh, and thanks so much to you, Alan. I'm just forever grateful for your work and your contributions. What a privilege to spend this time with you. It's been amazing. Well, we're both great. That's great. <laughs> Double great. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye for now. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science, for the benefit of humanity. Jillian Horton is based at the University of Manitoba's Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg. The book we talked about is We Are All Perfectly Fine, a memoir of love, medicine, and healing. You've been listening to an edited version of a longer conversation we had as part of a webinar arranged by the Arnold P. Gold Foundation. The webinar will be available in late June at gold-foundation.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. 
You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with John Colapinto. He's a journalist who, when he was working at Rolling Stone magazine, blew out his voice by singing too loud and too long in a pickup rock band. The good news is that it inspired him to find out what happened. And that led to a terrific book about that remarkable instrument, the human voice. Right now, my tongue is just dancing acrobatically, and it's hitting very specific targets inside my mouth. And I'm timing it with my exhalations. And I'm also timing it with closing and opening my vocal cords to voice some consonants and unvoice others. So, so much is going on that is really the dance, the acrobatic gymnastics that permits us to speak, to beam our thoughts into each other's heads by making the air vibrate in interesting ways, which is really what we're doing with our voices. John Colapinto, author of This is the Voice, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on Thursday, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Shriya Srinivasan, She's an amazing young woman who, while she was still working on her Ph.D., invented a way that someone with a missing limb can move and feel their prosthesis as naturally as if it were part of them. It's really, really incredible. This young lady who I'd worked with, she hadn't had um, a right foot since she was born. And so we had done the procedure on her and she put on that prosthesis and she said, wow, This is kind of how it would have been like if I had ever had a right foot. She could see her left foot and the right robotic foot go, you know, at the same time. And there was just this like wave of relief. And that was was really exciting to see. Shriya Srinivasan, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.